Hello again. Before we commence this episode of the podcast, I'd just like to include a brief programming note. With each episode, I've included in the program notes a photograph, or as Betty called them, a snap or snapshot, and I've since learned that some of the podcast apps don't include the image in the notes. In particular, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and TuneIn Radio, for some reason, don't include the image. Spotify and the Podbean app do. So if for some reason the player that you're choosing to use doesn't include the image and you'd like to see it, you can always visit the podcast website, which is wasfubar.podbean.com. That's wasfubar, W-O-Z-F-U-B-A-H, dot podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N, dot com. And now, to the episode. Welcome back to the next episode. 75 years ago today, it's Friday, 26th of April, 1946. In this episode, we'll feature Betty Souter's next letter, written to her godmother, Edith Thompson. It includes her reflections and observations after her two weeks in Shanghai before receiving instructions to proceed to the provinces deep within China. The letter's actually written as she's aboard a river steamer heading up the Yangtze River, destined for who knows what. In other news, back in Sydney, they're expecting a cloudy but fine day, mild temperatures, light southerly winds and slight seas. The headline story in the Sydney Morning Herald relates to panic buying in Sydney. No, not toilet paper. That's so very 2020. In 1946, the headline story read, Sydney, meatless from Monday. Housewives in frantic rush yesterday. A meat famine in Sydney from Monday is thought to be inevitable because of the failure yesterday to settle the slaughterman strike, which began at the three metropolitan abattoirs on Wednesday. Other front page news included a man died instantly in a fall from the Big Dipper ride at Luna Park, and teachers to receive substantial pay rises. But for now, let's resume the story of UNRWA, Chapter 2. Horizons Limited When the representatives of the 44 nations sat down to thresh out a pattern for UNRWA, the outlines of the relief and rehabilitation task ahead were still blurred, most of the invaded lands of both Europe and the Far East were completely blacked out. The ragged, disease-ridden, hungry men, women and children who had escaped across the Mediterranean from southern Europe and had been gathered up to be cared for in the Middle East refugee camps which UNRWA administered gave the world a sickening close-up of what was happening to human beings in the invaded lands. Allied intelligence indicated that in the bombed and bloodied battleground countries, whole cities were being pulverised, transportation wrecked, public utilities shattered. And, at that time, the war had, well, no one knew how many more months or years to go. UNRWA's approach was to put first things first. 
first things in any devastated area are food and clothing and shelter and medicine. For together, they spell the difference between life and death for a man, a village, a town, or a country. And these things were the essence of the initial R, the R for relief. The other R, the R for rehabilitation, had, in every way, to come second. Even with resources ultimately totaling more than $3 billion, UNRWA could not hope to restore the economy of a country that had been through years of war. It couldn't even hope to restore transportation or public utilities or communications or mines or ports or factories to their pre-war levels or conditions. Instead, UNRWA chose to make its rehabilitation target just this, to put back into running order those segments of a nation's economy which were necessary to carry out the relief program and to give each country and its people some of the tools to begin to help themselves. UNRWA relief and rehabilitation were therefore interlocked and interdependent. Without UNRWA bulldozers to repair the roads and UNRWA equipment to rebuild the bridges, without UNRWA trucks and UNRWA freight cars to roll down the repaired roads and rails, its supplies would have reached only a handful of those in need, and it would have been little more than a soup kitchen in the port cities. But when starvation threatened, and then threatened again, in country after country, UNRWA had to cut into some of its rehabilitation funds for some items to send food and more food, and still more food. First things had to come first. This, then, was the sum total of UNRWA's objective. Get to the people the essentials to keep them alive, and then give them some of the means to begin to pull themselves up by other than their own bootstraps. And finally, and to as vast an extent as possible, give them some of the boots as well. For the have-nots. Thus limiting its objectives, the administration then limited its scope. It was obvious that there would be worldwide shortages of both relief and rehabilitation supplies at the war's end, and that many nations would be scrambling for them. UNRWA accepted the challenge of making sure that those nations which had no foreign exchange and therefore could not bid and outbid for these supplies in a tight world market would receive a large enough share to head off complete disaster. At first, the recipient countries were limited to the invaded United Nations with no foreign exchange. Later on, several ex-enemy lands whose people had been unwillingly associated with the Axis, were added. The countries which were given general relief and rehabilitation assistance during all or part of the lifespan of UNRWA were Albania, Austria, Bielorussia, China, Czechoslovakia, Italy, Greece, Poland, the Ukraine and Yugoslavia. Those which received limited aid that is, food, clothing, medicine and other life-saving supplies were Ethiopia, Finland, Hungary, Korea, the Philippine Islands and the Dodecanese Islands and the small republic of San Marino. 
The invaded lands in Western Europe possessed adequate foreign exchange at the end of the war and did not ask UNRWA for aid. Small amounts of emergency supplies were sent into Normandy, the Low Countries, Luxembourg and Norway, in the immediate post-war months, financed from a special fund. And all invaded countries of Western Europe were given huge quantities of clothing raised in the UNRWA-sponsored United National and Victory clothing collections. This clothing likewise went to other invaded lands around the world. Chapter 3 follows next time. But now, let's find out what Betty's up to. Mrs. Betty Souter, UNRWA Embankment Building, 370, North Suchow Road, Shanghai, 26th of April, 1946. My very dear godmother, I know that you will have heard all the news so far received by the family. I have found it hard to get the time to write letters, but she'll try from now on to be a bit more regular. You have no idea how quickly the time goes by up here. This letter is being written out in the middle of the Yangtze River on board the SS Changying, an 800-ton river steamer, which is transporting me out to the Changxi province, city of Nanchang. We have just left one of the larger river cities by name Anqing, where we unloaded a fair-sized cargo of rice sacks and collected a number of steerage-class passengers. Unfortunately, we did not know that we would be staying at the wharf for a couple of hours, or we would have walked across to a lovely-looking pagoda which rose high above the city with its traditional seven roofs. I went through several Chinese temples in Shanghai, all of which were dirty, crowded and noisy. I am hoping that there will be less dirt and noise out in the provinces. Incidentally, it intrigues me to watch the sincerity of the people who pray at the feet of their idols. The women seem not to notice at all anything around them. Their faces are quite intense as they fall to their knees on the little wooden mats and three times knock their foreheads on the ground. They move from one figure to another, repeating their chants and browbeating with equal intensity. There are quite 30 idols in each of the temples, but the one around which the women clamoured and prayed the loudest was the one who grants privileges of the birth of sons. The chief mission in any Chinese woman's life is to bear a son. One incident amused me a lot. In a special room, all by himself, was a great old wooden idol, weather-beaten and worn, who had been removed by the Japs, but recovered in rather exciting guerrilla war by the Chinese. This idol is known to be at least 1,000 years old. In front of the idol, an old woman was giving her prayers everything that she was capable of. 
at the back of the idol, an old man was strenuously affecting repairs to the idol's cracked and splintered seat. <laughs> that is China. So much for the temples, of which I hope to see a great deal more. I do so hope that Shanghai is not typical of China. You cannot imagine anything quite so dirty as the narrow streets, the Wangpu River, crowded with barges on which people are born, live and die, work and play, eat, wash and sleep, the matted clothes, grey and thick with dirt, the food strewn on the paths, the pork hanging in the open street stalls for sale, the fish drying on the doorsteps of the shops, the filthy habits of the people themselves. It is quite easy to understand how plagues develop and spread in such a city. But now we are moving quite fast up the dirty yellow river towards, I hope, a cleaner and more open city. Nanchang is probably quite a large city and is the centre of the famous porcelain district. All the way along the river so far we have been through country which is level, rich and cultivated to the hilt. The riverbanks are particularly fertile and the crops are a bright, rich emerald green. The people do not seem to work very hard, not at all like the poor old Chinese gardeners at home. In fact, I have soon concluded that they are a pretty lazy crowd. Further, I'm sure that they are not nearly as poverty-stricken as they seem. However, I reserve my decisions until I have been further afield. I am very lucky in having with me as secretary a charming Melbourne girl, Marjorie Block. She was in the Air Force for four years and therefore knows her way around when it comes to travelling. We get along very well together. I think she's equally glad to have my company. The two men who left Mascot with me turned out to be the best of companions. In fact, I'm quite sad that the trio has broken up. They looked after me particularly well, always seeing that their girl got the best of anything that was going. And believe me, that meant quite a lot on the rough and ready travelling that we have been through together. Of course, I was able to reciprocate by using the old female personality when circumstances warranted, such as hitching rides, scrounging ice creams, gaining cups of tea from the air crews, etc., Yes, we proved a pretty good team, and now without my man, I must get along as best I can. I'm enclosing one of my calling cards bearing my Chinese name. Please remember that the Chinese side of the card is not read horizontally, and that the surname always comes first. My name in China is pronounced Su Beti. Rather attractive, don't you think? Thank you, Artie dear, for coming out to wave me off on that Tuesday morning, which already seems a million years ago. So often I have thought of the multitudinous feelings that I suffered as I watched you waving from the roof of that building. It was exciting but rather sad, but even as soon as that, my man took charge and made me feel the excitement of it all rather than the upset of leaving home. I want to write a letter to Phil today, so I will end this one now. I know that the news will pass amongst you, and so I try to write on different things to all of you. There are so many things of interest all the time that I hate to miss any of them. Lots of love to you all, and an extra special bit for my extra special godmother, Betty.
I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Betty Souter's fabulous journey into the heart of China. Production credits produced and narrated by Warren Henry, Betty Souter by Helen Polkinghorne. And the feature tune in this episode is The Gypsy by The Ink Spots, which rose to number five in the popular music charts in 1946. Until next time. In a quaint caravan, there's a lady they call the Gypsy. She can look in the future and drive away all your fears. Everything will come right if you only believe the gypsy. She could tell at a glance that my heart was so full of tears. She looked at my hand and told me my lover was always true. And yet in my heart I knew, dear, somebody else was kissing you. But I'll go there again, cause I want to believe the gypsy. That my lover is true And will come back to me someday You see, she looked in my hand And told me That my baby would always be true And yet, in my heart I knew, dear that somebody else was kissing you But I'll go there again Cause I want to believe the gypsy That my lover is true And will come back to me someday